Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we focus on Mumia Abu-Jamal. On Monday, April 19th, unjustly imprisoned black journalist and human rights campaigner Mumia Abu-Jamal underwent serious heart surgery. A few days prior, Mumia was rushed to the hospital following severe chest pains he was experiencing. A day earlier, Mumia's lawyer informed his close supporters that he complained of chest pain while on a walk. From there, he was taken to an undisclosed hospital where it was discovered that his coronary articles were blocked. Mamiya already suffered from several pre-existing health conditions. Back in March of this year, he reportedly lost over 30 pounds after becoming ill with COVID-19 in the Mahoney State Correctional Institution. Mamiya has also previously been diagnosed with congestive heart failure, diabetes, and liver cirrhosis. During his hospitalization last month, Mamiya was shackled to his hospital bed for four days and had wounds on his body from the shackles that dug into his skin. Saturday, April 24th, Mumia will turn 67 years old. Three days of action demanding the release of Mumia will take place from Friday, April 23rd through Saturday, April 25th. The days of action had already been planned to mark Mumia's birthday before news came of his heart surgery. We are now awaiting news of the outcome of the surgery. Starting at the age of 14 in 1968, Mamiya Abu-Jamal became involved with the Black Panther Party and was a member until October of 1970. During that time, he was named Minister of Information for the Black Panther Party. After, and this was in Philadelphia. After he finished high school, he became a radio journalist and later served as president of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. Mamiya Abu-Jamal was active in supporting the MOVE organization in Philadelphia, which was, was being harassed and violently attacked by the police. While working as a part-time reporter at uh, WDAS, a radio station in Philadelphia, Mumia worked two nights a week as a taxi cab driver to supplement his income. On December 9th, 1981, police department officer Daniel Faulkner conducted a traffic stop on a vehicle belonging to and driven by William, Mumia's younger, youngest, younger brother. Um, Mamiya's brother was uh, um, attacked and harassed by Faulkner. Um, Faulkner was shot and killed by an unidentified person, although evidence uh, has come forward about who the killer might potentially be. Mamiya was also shot in the incident and he was beat pretty severely by several police officers before they took him to the hospital. The difference with what happened to Mamiya back then versus what happened to Rodney King or to George Floyd is that there was no video to record the incident. Let us go to a clip now um, that um, shows the relationship and you know from Rodney King to George Floyd. May I please the court? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, good morning. 
and video evidence I think will be very helpful and meaningful to you because you can see it for yourself without lawyer talk, lawyer spin, lawyer anything. You can see it for yourself. Please, please, I can't breathe. Please, man, please, the man. Please, leave my name. I'm about to die this day. Oh my God. What did he say? He said, I'm about to Goodbye. die. Oh my God. While watching the George Floyd trial, I noticed the differences and the importance of footage. This corner? When Stefan was murdered, we only had the officer's footage. We only had their point of view. Hey, show me your hands! You know, when my son was killed, being on the platform, there was several bystanders that filmed and had it not been for the cameras, we wouldn't even be here today because they would have probably said it was justified. Bro, with your feet on his head, man, you be on your knees and your knees. A little bit more, right here. I don't watch the footage of my dad's incident because it's torture. You see the officers giving a tour of blows to his body. Yes, to his arms, to his torso, to his legs. Here it is 30 years later. Nothing has changed. Now, who are you going to believe? The defendants or your own eyes? I am watching the George Floyd case with my best friend Tiffany at her home. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And he's still on his neck. Today was the first time I watched the entire video of George Floyd, and it definitely made me think about my dad begging for his life, screaming. His daughter was the same age I was when my dad was beaten. Okay, and you heard the voice there of Oscar Grant's mother, as well as uh, Laura King, the daughter of Rodney uh, King. And one has to pose the question, if video footage were around, would Mumia Abu-Jamal would be in prison where he has been for over uh, four decades? Mumia was unjustly charged with um, police officer Faulkner's uh, death and has been imprisoned ever since. During his imprisonment, Mumia has continued his work as a journalist, issuing weekly audio for release via prison radio. He's written several books during that time. His arrest and imprisonment has spawned a national and worldwide movement demanding a new trial and that Mumia Abu-Jamal be released. In June of 1995, uh, Mumia's uh, death warrant was signed by Pennsylvania governor at the time, Tom Ridge. However, in December of 2011, former district attorney of Philadelphia, R. Seth Williams, announced that prosecutors would no longer seek the death penalty for Mumia, but would instead push for a sentence of life imprisonment without parole. Throughout his 40-year incarceration, Mamiya's family, loved ones, and supporters all over the world have maintained his innocence, uh, as has Mamiya. Mamiya's attorneys, Judith Ritter and Samuel Spital, recently submitted their response to legal briefs filed on February 3rd by Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner regarding Mamiya's current post-conviction relief act appeals. Um, Krasner has claimed he could not 
find any documents supporting the defense's claim. In his long-delayed response to legal briefs filed on Mia's behalf in September of 2019, uh, Krasner, Larry Krasner, is still denying Mamiya's right to prove his innocence. Well, as Mamiya's 67th uh, birthday nears and as his health continues to deteriorate, his legal case slowed down, slowly making its way through the bureaucratic appellate court system. Our guests uh, today include uh, Pam Africa, head of international concerned friends and family of Mia Abu-Jamal, and Lynn Washington, award-winning uh, journalist. You will also hear the voice um, speaking about Mumia from Angela Davis, as well as Bob Boyle, who is Mumia's medical attorney. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandiri. The jury in the Derek Chauvin murder and manslaughter trial will spend its first full day of deliberations today as it weighs the former Minneapolis police officer's culpability in the killing of George Floyd. Yesterday, jurors listened to hours of closing arguments and heard the judge's instructions. Laura Rossbrow Tallam reports. Steve Schleicher, an attorney for the prosecution of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, gave closing arguments Monday, describing George Floyd's last moments in detail. He argued Chauvin's continued use of force against Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds was excessive and unjustifiable. You can believe your eyes. It's what you felt in your gut. It's what you now know in your heart. This wasn't policing. This was murder. The defendant is guilty of all three counts and there's no excuse. Chauvin's defense attorney, Eric Nelson, made his closing argument by explaining Chauvin, quote, does not have to prove his innocence. Instead, he said the jury needs to put themselves in the shoes of an officer in the same situation. Human beings make decisions in highly stressful situations that they believe to be right in the very moment it is occurring. The 12 jurors in the trial are now in deliberations. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Laura Rosbratellum. Chicago Latino community leaders and lawyers are asking the Justice Department to investigate the fatal police shooting of 13-year-old Adam Toledo. The group also plans to call on Mayor Lori Lightfoot to accelerate court-supervised changes to policing in Chicago to end foot pursuits by officers and to invest federal COVID relief dollars to help young people in the neighborhood where Adam Toledo lived and died. Chicago agreed to hundreds of changes in policing under a consent decree approved by a federal judge in 2019. That was after a Justice Department probe found a record of racism and abuse by Chicago police going back decades. The investigation was prompted by the 2014 killing of Laquan McDonald by a white officer. Jason Van Dyke was later convicted of murder for shooting the teen 16 times, video of which the city fought to suppress. The House has approved legislation to allow banks to do business with the cannabis industry. The vote was 321 to 101, a better than three to one margin. The cannabis industry and the American Bankers Association both backed the legislation. 
half of Republicans who were present and voting supported the measure. The House vote sends the so-called Safe Banking Act to the Senate. It would allow financial institutions to provide banking services to marijuana businesses without fear of federal prosecution. Senators Ed Markey of Massachusetts and California's Alex Padilla will join with New York Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez to reintroduce Green New Deal legislation. Their event will come two days before President Biden's virtual climate summit planned for Thursday and Friday. Markey and Ocasio-Cortez originally introduced the Green New Deal two years ago. It envisions a 10-year national mobilization to address what they say are the interconnected economic, social, racial, and climate crises gripping the nation. Former Vice President Walter Mondale, a liberal icon who lost one of the most lopsided presidential elections after bluntly telling voters to expect a tax increase if he won, has died. He was 93. Mondale served Minnesota as Attorney General and U.S. Senator. He was vice president under Jimmy Carter from 1977 to 1981. Mondale's own try for the White House in 1984 came at the height of Ronald Reagan's popularity. Mondale's selection of New York Congresswoman Geraldine Ferraro as his running mate made him the first major party presidential nominee to put a woman on the ticket. On Election Day, he carried only his home state of Minnesota and the District of Columbia. No word on the condition of imprisoned former Black Panther and journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal. He had told his wife he was scheduled to have open-heart surgery yesterday, but prison officials have been tight-lipped about his whereabouts and his precarious medical condition. Abu-Jamal contracted COVID-19 in prison in February. He turns 67 on Saturday. His consulting physician said a few days ago that Mumi Abu-Jamal has severe blockages of his coronary arteries or coronary artery disease. He said before last week's health emergency, Abu-Jamal was already suffering from COVID-19, congestive heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, liver cirrhosis, and a worsening of a severe and debilitating chronic skin condition. Abu-Jamal is serving a life sentence for the 1981 slaying of Daniel Faulkner, a 25-year-old Philadelphia police officer. Abu Jamal and his supporters have said he's innocent of the slang. They have called for his release. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, following up from our news headlines there. We are going to focus the hour on Mamiya Abu-Jamal. Um, Mamiya Abu-Jamal, a political prisoner just unjustly imprisoned for the killing of a police officer in Philadelphia. There's a nationwide and worldwide movement um, that has sprung up demanding his release and claiming his innocence. Now, on Thursday, April 15th, Mumia's friends, family, and loved ones hosted an emergency press conference. Several demands were raised by them. Um, as I said earlier, Mumia had heart surgery, pretty serious, it seems, on, um, on Monday, yesterday. Um, they were asking that before his surgery, Mumia be allowed to call his wife, also to call Pam Africa, his chosen 
Rosen, um, who has long been involved in his uh, campaign for his freedom, his chosen doctor, Ricardo Alvarez, and his spiritual advisor, Mark Taylor. They also demanded that Mumia not be shackled in his hospital bed and that Mumia be immediately released from prison. Uh, during the press conference that took place on Thursday, April 15th, Dr. Alvarez said he believes um, that um, Mumia, the surgery, is to treat his clogged arteries. He also said that demands for more information regarding his treatment had been gone unmet. Uh, so we're going to try to find out what we can and uh, dig deep into the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. And on that front, I would like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Lynn Washington, award-winning journalist who's covered the Mumia Abu-Jamal case since December of 1981. A graduate of Yale Law Journalism Fellowship, Lynn Washington writes regularly on issues involving law, the criminal justice system, news media, and inequities involving race and or class. His information junkie teaches multimedia urban reporting at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, he does live in New Jersey and has to uh, travel frequently, at least this was uh, prior to COVID. Lynn Washington, welcome back. Uh, hi, Margaret. Thanks for having me. Let us go to a, a brief clip also by Mark Lamont Hill opening that press conference uh, that happened last week uh, demanding Mamiya's release. My name is Mark Lamont Hill. The reason why we are here today for this uh, press conference, without exaggeration, is to save a life. This is an urgent circumstance for anybody, but for someone living in the dungeons of Pennsylvania prisons or any American prison. It is of especially urgent nature. We are here today to call for justice for Mumia Abu-Jamal, to ensure that Mumia survives and continues to fight. Our specific demands are very simple, but very important. The first one is, we demanded that before surgery, Mumia be allowed to call his wife, Wadia Jamal, his longtime supporter, Pam Africa, his chosen doctor, Dr. Ricardo Alvarez, and his spiritual advisor, Mark Taylor. We also demand that Mumia Abu-Jamal not be shackled to his hospital bed, as is the rule in Pennsylvania and around the United States. Again, this is a non-negotiable demand. And we also demand that Mumia, an innocent man, be immediately released from prison. Some of you will say this is too extreme a set of demands. Some will say that this is an unreasonable set of demands. But we say, no, this is absolutely necessary. The first demand is a basic human right to be able to contact one's loved ones. The second is a basic act of medical ethics. Shackling someone to the bed greatly increases their chances of not surviving, greatly increases their chances of having harm done to them medically. And the third one is the call that we've always made to free Mumia. We, we say free Mumia because Mumia is both factually innocent and legally not guilty of the crimes for which he was convicted. 
All righty. So Lynn Washington, of, um, Jr., of course, you know this case inside out. And what I'd like you to uh, talk a bit about is that Pam Africa, she has issued a challenge uh, to Larry uh, Krasner, who was said to be the progressive uh, district attorney, DA of Philadelphia, and also um, the CNN host, uh, Michael Schmirkanish, um, about some work that you and uh, you were involved in, along with uh, Dave Lindorf. So tell us about that, um, because you all were involved in a, a test, a ballistics test, back in 2010. Tell us about that and what do you think it showed and what has happened with it? Well, no pun intended. That particular test that we performed in 2010 literally blew a hole in one of the core pillars of the conviction of Abu Jamal. According to prosecutors, Mumia executed Daniel Faulkner, meaning that Abu Jamal shot him, Faulkner fell down, Abu Jamal straddled him, fired four shots, missing three times, but hitting Officer Faulkner once. What we examined was this fact. The crime scene photos that were introduced in court and that are now a part of the court record show no bullet marks around where um, Officer Faulkner's body laid. You cannot, cannot shoot a bullet into a sidewalk and it not make any marks. So what we did was get a piece of sidewalk, a 200-pound piece of sidewalk. We got a gun that was very similar to the kind that Abu Jamal had. It was the same style, albeit a different manufacturer. And we fired a series of different kinds of ammunition. And each bullet that we fired, uh, the plus P ammunition that Abu Jamal was said to have in his gun, or any other 38 caliber ammunition, they all made marks. So that's what our um, our test was about. And like I said, that test showing the impossibility of firing a pistol into the ground, uh, sidewalk and leaving no marks. And if that was what the prosecution claimed Abu Jamal did, and the physical evidence, the ballistic evidence, indicated that that's an impossibility that just shows another aspect of the facts that have led to uh, Mumia being in jail for uh, 39 years and, and four months as of today. Wow, close close to 40 years. We said over, over four decades, but it's yeah, been close yeah. to 40 years. Yeah. Okay, thank you uh, for that uh, correction. It seems as though it's been over four decades, right? Um, oh, yeah, but, well, Mm -hmm. 39 years, 4 months, 11 days, 345,048 hours. That's a long time. That's a long time for anyone to be in prison, and that's an extraordinarily long time for someone who the evidence is very clear did not do what you claim that he did to have been incarcerated. Absolutely. And I mean, it was pretty brutal what happened uh, to Mamiya because and, indeed, and, and tell us just a little bit before we talk any further about that night, because Mamiya himself was shot and then beat. And uh, the clip I played earlier from Rodney King to, uh, to George Floyd, I mean, we could 
um, imagine if an incident like that had happened today. Likely somebody would have caught it on video and we would be having a whole different discussion now. Perhaps we would be having a whole different discussion because we know how um, the courts uh, go and the injustice in, in these kinds of police incidences. Um, but tell us really what, ha you know, about Mumia's injuries, because he was beat pretty badly by the police. Uh, Mumia was beaten horribly uh, at the crime scene. Um, the officers who literally picked him up from the curb and put him in a police van later testified that they inadvertently rammed his head into a telephone pole seven times. Inadvertently rammed his head into a telephone pole seven times. You inadvertently do something once or twice. Seven times is uh, so that you really intended on doing it. He was beaten inside the van. When the van took him to the hospital and he was put on the floor of the emergency room before he went in for emergency surgery, police officers beat him again. So we have three separate beatings within a 90-minute span. Um, and things just, you know, spiraled out of control uh, from there. And it's interesting in terms of this beating because this, too, goes to the core of the um, conviction of Abu Jamal. The conviction of Abu Jamal is built on three things, eyewitness testimony, ballistics, and the confession. Um, Abu Jamal allegedly made a confession at the hospital while he was being beaten. I mean, think about this. You know, he's being beaten, kicked, stomped. He's so injured that he himself is near death. His lungs are filled with blood. So doctors have testified that he could not shout. But according to only two officers, of all of the 12 to 16 officers that were around, only two officers claimed that he shouted a confession. And one of those officers who claimed this, on the night the incident happened, said that Abu Jamal made no comments, but two months later, he suddenly remembers that he heard a confession. Um, so I, I don't, <laughs> I, I mean, I could get very deep into this, but the, the fact is that on the night of the incident, there was one confession, then there was a separate confession that was put, it, put uh, forth during the trial. So this case has so many holes in it. It's almost like a big block of Swiss cheese. Um, and, but the courts have refused to acknowledge the misconduct by police and prosecutors. They have refused to um, acknowledge the improbability of the way the prosecution has made his case. And now we have Larry Krasner, who himself has found new evidence. And what I mean by that is this. In December of 2018, Krasner was doing a tour, an inspection tour of the DA's office complex in downtown Philadelphia. They discovered a floor between two floors that they didn't know existed. While they were on this subfloor, they go into a closet, and it's filled with boxes from different cases. In this room filled with boxes, there were six boxes that have Abu Jamal on it. They examined that evidence, and they found some startling things that, again, underlie the, um, <laughs> the improbability and the, and the misconduct in Abu Jamal's case. One of the things that was discovered was a handwritten letter 
sent to the prosecutor two weeks after the trial, ain't witnesses. And the letter was very simple. It says, where's my money? You promised me some money. I haven't gotten it. What do I need to do to get my money? So what was he talking about? Was he talking about a reimbursement for lunch money? Prosecutors give their witnesses lunch. So he didn't, it wasn't lunch money. Was it coming to court? Prosecutors go to your house, send their detectives, pick you up and take you back. So it wasn't transportation money. So was this witness paid off? And this was one of the witnesses who claimed that they saw Abu Jamal actually shoot Officer Faulkner in a way that couldn't have happened because there was no bullet marks uh, in the sidewalk. And further, what we found in that test that when you shoot a bullet into the ground, not only does it make marks because the bullet hits it, but it, you know, knocks up dust and dirt and, you know, particles of uh, sidewalk. And there were no indications on Officer Faulkner's clothes that there were any um, dirt or anything like that. So this case is just so outrageous. And Larry Krasner, who has discovered evidence of misconduct that shows Mumia's innocence, is now seeking to block Abu Jamal's ability to get into court and present that evidence. Just outrageous. We'll be talking a bit more with that. Pam Africa will be uh, joining us very shortly. Our guest here, uh, Lynn Washington, award-winning journalist who's been covering uh, Mumia's case since 1981. Uh, what I'd like to do now, Lynn, before we go a station, a station yeah. break and welcome um, Pam, is to hear what Angela Davis had to say about um, Mumia and his case just a few days ago. As we know, people all over the world have been developing solidarity actions for Amumia over the last several decades. And, and they remain incredulous that he has had to spend the last 40 years of his life under conditions that no human being should have to uh, live. There are people from Europe, from Africa, from South America, from the Caribbean, and from other parts of the world. We knew at the beginning of this pandemic that prisons were going to be responsible for the rapid spread of COVID-19. And we called for the release of prisoners, especially aging prisoners. And we know that imprisonment speeds up the aging process. This is one of so many reasons why we need to abolish prisons. I am one of the many around the world who have deep revolutionary love for Mumia. And we know that he needs us now. He needs, to, he needs us to stand with him as he confronts the brutal power of the state and as he tries to grapple with his medical condition, which has been produced and we know exacerbated by prison authorities. As has been the case many times before during the course of Mumia's incarceration, his predicament mirrors that of so many other people behind bars. And we know that whenever we win a victory in the course of our struggle for Mumia's freedom, it is a victory for the larger community of women and men, cis and trans who are in prisons all over the U.S. For too many years, as a direct consequence 
of the power and influence of police unions and associations, it has been really hard to build movements for Mumia's freedoms in the US that match the support developed in Europe, for example, uh, because these police organizations have misrepresented him. They have demonized him. They have turned him into a figure deserving scorn and vilification. We all know that Mumia deserves love and support and solidarity. This is a moment when we are witnessing exactly how racism is produced and reproduced within the ranks of police forces across the country. And even though they know they're being closely watched, they simply cannot help engaging in activity that leads to more racism, more repression, more deaths. Because they are not as all-powerful as they used to be, this is precisely the moment to militantly intervene on Mumia's behalf. Racist violence has to stop. We can call too many names, Tamir Rice, Sandra Blunt, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and now Dante Wright. And we know that our collective sensibility to the way police forces and prison systems have devoured the lives of our communities, including leaders such as Leonard Peltier, and of course, uh, our beloved brother, Mumia Abu-Jamal. This collective sensitivity. Bring that down here. Um, there you heard Angela Davis um, expressing solidarity with Mumia Abu-Jamal. We are focusing on him uh, through this hour. We are going to take a very short station break. Uh, coming up, uh, Pam Africa joins us. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Mumia Abu-Jamal by Aymara. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Pennsylvania. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners across uh, France. We have a strong listenership for some reason in France. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. What I'd like to do now is to uh, welcome Pam Africa. She is the head of the International Concerned Friends and Family of Mumia Abu-Jamal, the Philadelphia-based organization at the center of the international movement seeking Mumia's freedom and release. Pam Africa, welcome. Yes, on the move. Thank you. Um, I'm so glad to be on here and to follow Linda Lindley, Lynn Washington Lee. Yeah, no, Lynn no, is I'm still here with us, Pam, Pam, so oh, you can have some interaction yeah, with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, you know, I know that he dotted every I and crossed every T 
And uh, um, I just like to say what a magnificent, strong black man Lynn Washington is. And uh, because he has stood up against this government telling the truth, you know, he don't, I mean, you know, to have, you know, two journalists like Lynn and Mumia and all that, no matter what the odds is, and all, they tell the truth. Um, and I would like, you know, uh, Lynn also has a site called I Can't Believe This Is Happening. And, uh, you know, um, we, we always go there, uh, you know, to put out, you know, to get information out as well. But I just heard from the um, doctors and uh, uh, through Mumia's health attorney, Bob Bull, who said that the operation for Mumia went well and that um, right now he's on minimal to no oxygen at all and that he has one IV in him. Um, haven't heard Pam, from Mumia. This is, we have breaking news right now um, because this is the first we're hearing about uh, the result of the surgery. Pam, just please repeat again for our listeners what you just said. That's really good news. I'm just so excited because we have been waiting all night ever since Mumia had the operation yesterday. And then we didn't hear from him. I was up just about all night with his wife because, you know, he's trying to figure out, you know, what's going on here. Because they were supposed to call his wife, Wadir, and let her know. They never made that phone call. So, you know, everybody's minds is going, you know, do that mean that, you know, they made a mistake? But this morning, Attorney Bob Ball, um kept pushing, and he got the word from, the, uh, from one of the doctors that the open heart surgery and all that was dealing with um, um, two of his, uh, of his arteries had mm -hmm. closed. One was 90, 89 to 99% closed, and he had to have this open heart surgery to clear them out. And I don't know whether they replaced anything or not, and all, but I do know they say that Mumia came through this, you know, um, you know, in good health and all that he gets oxygen, uh, you know, a minimal to no oxygen at all. That means he's breathing well and he has a one IV in his arm. So that's right. the report on Mobia and that relieves a lot of people. When we talked with Wadia, Mumia's wife, and uh, Bob Bull was telling her and also he says, well, at least we know, she said, I know when I talk to Mumia, you know. So this is where we're at right now. And a lot of people is just, you know, really, you know, hopeful. Um, so yeah. I want to talk Pam, about do you know, did you get any idea of if they did shackle him or not? Or you, or you don't know that as of now? I know you all have been really pushing for that not to happen. Right. I haven't talked with Mumia I haven't talked with the doctor. The doctor's supposed to be calling Wadia, and she's going to, uh, um, you know, um, have his doctor, a Mumia's choice, Dr. Ricardo Alvarez, you know, on the phone so that he can ask the necessary questions because me, myself, I really don't know. And uh, um, so, you know, they'll be on the phone together when they talk to the doctor. And hopefully, and uh, um, soon after that, they'll had Mumia on, because last week when they said that they was going to give him surgery, and uh, um, they didn't, 
and uh, they performed this a uh, procedure that um, you know where they checked and found out about the arteries. So um, right after that, because you thinking that Moomin is getting you know this this major surgery last week, right? And you know next thing we know, Moomin is calling and he's sounding good. You know he's sounding good, and it's like damn, he's really a superman. You can go through surgery and have that, but no, it was the procedure last week and uh, that led them to find out that his arteries was closed and they had to do the open heart surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's my report, you know, on, you know, on that. Oh, Pam, that is, uh, that, thank you so much for coming on, on the show and, and sharing this breaking news with us, uh, Pam Africa. I'm going to bring Lynn Washington back into the discussion, but Pam, um, for people who want to really be involved in this and really push um, for me as for Mamiya's freedom. There's been a whole move even before COVID, but also since COVID for aging prisoners uh, to be released. Mumia is now an elder. I don't know how many times people across the world in the U.S. other people have done deep to prove Mumia's innocence, but nevertheless he is he is still there. There are three days of activities coming up because. Mamiya's birthday is coming up. So tell us about that, uh, Pam Africa, and how people could find out about it or get involved. Right. We have a newspaper called the Jamal Journal. I mean, mm-hmm. jamaljournal.com. People can go to that site and they can get the up-to-date, you know, information and uh, about the uh, demonstrations. On the 23rd, we're doing a Zoom fundraiser. Because, like you know, it takes money. And uh, to actually be able to continue, you know, um, the work that we need to do. I'm saying we want to post to this city. We're not going to hide while we're doing it because it is our constitutional right. And uh, to post that this government is in the process of committing cold-blooded, premeditated murder. And they don't have to look for us because if you look on the paper, it, on, on the flyers, it will tell you exactly who we are and how to get in contact with us. If they want to take us to court for doing it, we welcome that because that is another chance for us to put out information. Um, the, um, on the 20th, oh, so that's the fundraiser on um, Saturday, and they have, I mean, on Friday night, and it starts at 6 o'clock. We have a huge lineup of, um, you know, entertainers and things to have, you know, um, taken time to actually, you know, be involved. On Saturday, and uh, is the demonstration for Mamiya's birthday, and that's what we're using again to put out a lot of information. And I'm telling you, people are coming here from all over, everywhere, and uh, because you know they were coming before this, but since they've done, you know, since this operation and stuff, you know, they're really coming, you know, in here now. On Sunday, we're doing another, you know, one and. You know, at the demonstrations, like you said, the elders in the prison, we're doing that. And also, like, um, with Mumia, we have a Dr. Ricardo Alvarez and Dr. Um, Dr. McIntosh out in New York, you know, who've gotten together with other top-notch doctors and wrote a physician, you know, paper out um, and a petition. They're not only exposing what's happening to Mumia, but they're showing in this letter that 
um, and dealing with political prisoners and prisoners, and, uh, you know, like with Mumia. The trauma started when Mumia was beaten on the street, thrown on the floor of a hospital thing, you know, when he was shot and stuff, and, uh, you know, and how they covered it up as if it's nothing. They're challenging also in this, in uh, um, the health care givers in the hospital, because there was um, two, it was a Dr. Carletta who um, talked about the conditions of Mumia in, you know, when uh, he said he was with them from the very beginning. And there's another woman, a um, nurse, who said that while she's standing there and uh, she saw a guard, put, I mean, one of the cops put his feet up in the air, she said, and she heard Mumia moan because he couldn't, like they said, holler and curse and all uh, because Dr. Carletta said it was impossible because of, you know, the trap the trauma that went to the lungs and all uh, from yeah. the shooting. But they're dealing with that, they're dealing with the trauma that's inside the uh prisons and all uh, what people have got to go through. And uh the only reason why Mumia is alive today is because of this movement. And I give you a good example of that. When Mumia called and he told me that his chest felt very heavy and he couldn't breathe. He was having problems breathing. And he said he believed he had COVID. And uh, the power of this movement, all I had to do was call a few people and it just went around the world. And, uh, I mean, there is no power like the power of the people, you know, when the yeah. power of the people don't stop. So we hadn't heard from, you know, okay, what they did, Mumia disappeared from us again. They took him into the hospital, and at that particular point, they, um, this is not this time. It was a few weeks before, a couple of weeks before this. They said, um, the DOC in the infirmary, they said Mumia did not have COVID, and Mumia never had COVID. I believe Mumia and what it is that he said. And also, and, and, and the chest pains, and uh, they wasn't doing anything with that until it became very clear that they need to rush him to the hospital. In the hospital, they said Mumia had COVID, and that's where they said that he had um, congested heart failure. And, mm -hmm. you know, they gave him stuff to, you know, to deal with that. They relieved 10 pounds of water pressure off his chest and told him he was okay. And here it was a few weeks later, a couple weeks later, and um, um, Mumia winds back up in the hospital. But I want to give you an example. I was at a demonstration about elders and COVID in the prison. And this sister got up. I don't know who, I know who she is now. She said, my brother called me and he told me that he had this heavy pressure on his chest. His breathing is hard. He said he believed he had COVID. They did nothing for this man, nothing. And she said her brother died two days later. And, uh, and I'm saying that to say that, you know, not only with Mumia, and uh, we have got to do this with everybody. The only difference between, you know, that brother, and he had a little movie, the sister had some people, but it takes all of us, you know, to do. Um, and when he got sick this time, and, uh, you know, when he went to the um, hospital when he went to the hospital at the, um, in front, when he was in the infirmary, and uh, they told him, you know, he, they gave him an EKG, and Mumia said that they told him everything was, you know, cool, and they sent him back to his cell. But he got sick at an 
supports the inmates. And uh, it's very important that people understand the love that the inmates have for each other inside that prison because they always want to push people off like, you know, it's just hardcore. Yeah, and some of that happens in the prison, and that's true. But nobody ever talk about Mumia's life has been saved each time because of the quick response on the outside, but most important, by what the people do on the inside, demanding, and wind up getting locked up and, you know, um, uh, put in a hole because they tell people what's going on with Mumia. Um, you have another question. I just wanted to throw that in there. And, uh, yeah, um, no, that's you know, that Pam, Pam Africa. That's that's really very very clear. And in California, we had a fantastic example of the kind of organizing you talk about the prisoners inside and how they have uh, protected and in many ways helped to save Mumia's life. As did the movement outside in California. We had the experience of the massive um, California prisoner hunger strike um, that mm -hmm. was just really really amazing and and really shone a light on. The, you know, things like solitary uh, confinement. And, you know, I, Pam and, and Lynn, I'd like to bring you back into this discussion as well. I mean, we did a lot of support for the California uh, uh, hunger strike, but also, Lynn, as a journalist, some years back, I did a call for journalists and had a, uh, to support Mamiya and uh, issue, had issued a letter that a number of journalists did sign on to. So, uh, Lynn, I just want you to talk a, a little bit uh, now about Mamiya's journalism, because I'm looking at a list of about nine books that Mamiya has written, and all of this is from when he has been inside, and also the the um, audio that he issues on a, a regular basis. I mean, one of the, the books, he's also a jailhouse lawyer and wrote about it with the encouragement of Selma James, a colleague of mine, uh, when Mamiya wrote Jailhouse Lawyers, Prisoners Defending Prisoners versus the U.S. Um, versus the USA, put out by City Lights Publishers in 2009, but there are a number of books, including Have Black Lives Ever Mattered, also City Lights in, in 2017. But Lynn, tell us a bit about um, Mumia's journalism, which is quite distinguished, but also the Fraternal Order of Police, they have a history in um, Philadelphia, and they have definitely stood in the way, um, definitely want to see Mumia killed, um, many of the movement are saying. We just have a few minutes left, so I'd like you to weigh in on that, and then some quick final thoughts from Pan Africa, Lynn Washington. Yeah. Well, as a journalist, uh, Mumia has been extraordinarily productive. In fact, more productive than 80% of the journalists uh, outside of the prisons. As you indicated, he's written a number of books. I think it's now in excess of over a dozen books, both single author and co-author, like he co-authored a book in 2012 with um, Mark Lamont Hill talking about, you know, classroom to, classrooms to, to prison cells. Right. In addition to the 12 books that he's written, he's written a lot of commentaries. He's written thousands of commentaries. That level of output is extraordinary for any journalist, particularly a journalist who spent 30 years, a little less than 30 years, on death row, and a journalist who in this age of, you know, digital everything – still writes everything longhand because he doesn't write on a laptop or a computer. Uh, he writes everything longhand. So it's extraordinary uh, that what he has done and what he's been able to do in terms of the depth and the amount of evidence and information that he puts into his articles behind the walls of prisons. We, we hear criticism about media 
in terms of what journalists are not doing on the outside of prison. And here's a person who's in prison doing more in terms of the fulfilling the basics of journalism than the people who are outside supposedly practicing this craft to inform the people and hold uh, officials uh, accountable for their actions in the public sector and private sector. Absolutely. And um, um, I, I do want to give um, uh, Pam Africa a chance for just some final thoughts here. Uh, Pam, there's a younger generation that they're just not only now learning about Mamiya. Uh, what do you say to them about the significance of not only Mamiya, his work, his life, what he's represented, but the movement uh, for his freedom? Pam Africa, final thoughts. Right. I like to throw a strong fist up in the air for the youth and uh, because they have generation after generation after generation have been part of the front line. Right now, a lot of things that's being done and all the organizing is from them. But I need to let you know this. They had just moved 1,000, um, um, what do they call them? Um, uh, they called for 1,000 troops in Philadelphia. And uh, that's behind the um, George um, Taylor, you know, um, yeah, you know, waiting George for that Floyd, decision to come down. Mm -hmm. Well, our event is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, so they're going to still be there. I want people to have their eyes on Philadelphia, and uh, because we are going to do our demonstration as soon as I get off this phone, I'm going to have a meeting with the um, city manager director of the city of Philadelphia, and uh, hopefully the mayor and the rest of them to let them know we're not backing down from my position of putting the information out. Now, if y'all want to put this uh, close off where we're at in the 8 block radius, and uh, we, we will move it someplace else because our first concern is the men, women, and children that's going to be in that demonstration. So, you know, I really want people to have all eyes on Philadelphia on Saturday. Absolutely. Um, Eyes yeah, on Philadelphia. Know about the negotiations. Again, you can go to and, uh, jamaljournal.com where you will have up to the up-to-date everything dealing with Lumia. Well, Pam Africa, I know how busy you are. Thank you for taking time to share breaking news with us and uh, Lynn Washington for your, your work and, and the study you did with uh, Dave Lindorf. We also want to acknowledge them. We want to thank uh, Phoebe Jones Schallenberg for her help with this segment. I'm afraid we are out of time, but we're going to continue to follow this. I mean, all of us are part of the free Mamiya Abu Jamal movement. Thank you so very much, Pam Africa, Lynn Washington. Uh, all today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our audio engineer today, Gary Baca, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Two worlds in America, one of the well-to-do and another of the struggling. For if ever there was the absence of homeland security, it is seen in the gritty roots of hip-hop. For the music arises from a generation that feels, with some justice, that they have been betrayed by those who came before them, that they are, at best, tolerated in schools, feared on the streets, and almost inevitably destined for the hellholes of prison. They grew up hungry, hated, and unloved. And this is the psychic fuel that generates the anger that seems endemic in much of the music and poetry. One senses very little hope above the personal goals of wealth to climb above the pit of poverty.